Hello, and welcome to The Food Podcast, a show where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This episode is a little different. It's a look at what we eat, sometimes in secret, when we are all alone. And I don't mean this in a disordered eating sense. I mean it in a celebratory, delightful, pleasuring ourselves sense. We'll look at an ingredient and listen to a story and learn about a cake that won't fail. And we'll eat a peanut butter sandwich. So let's begin where I'll drop you into my kitchen on a late October day. I'm sitting on a stool at the kitchen island. The afternoon sun is pouring through the windows, bleaching the spines of my cookbooks. Reds have turned to pink and charcoals to a reddish brown. I don't mind. I like to have them close by, and if faded spines are the sacrifice, I'll take it. I'm facing the window, looking out at the back garden. I see that the clustered hydrangea blossoms have tipped from creamy white to dusty magenta, and the crabapple leaves are starting to dry and curl. Fall has moved in. My socked feet are up on a kitchen stool, and on my lap is a punnet of ground cherries, Phasalis pruinosa. I saw them at the market this morning. Their season is so special and so fleeting, so I bought a box. No one in my family really likes them, but that's okay. They're just for me anyway. The punnet resembles a small basket filled with a diminutive, shrunken version of Chinese lanterns inside. They're small, papery droplets, a five-sided fragile teardrop that come together in a point at the bottom. These little droplets grow low to the ground, and when they're ripe, they fall off the vine into the soil, hence the name ground cherries. They're found on the ground. As I sit here, contemplating the seasons with a ground cherry between my index finger and thumb, I think about an essay my classmate wrote in our Tuesday writing group. Annalie Hershey is the woman who wrote the essay. It's called Having Your Cake, and it begins with the line, Once I put a cake in my closet. This essay stuck with me. Annalie has a beautiful philosophical mind with a keen focus on Hannah Arendt. She also loves the poet Jane Kenyon and the subject of bodies and the body politic. Everyone in the group pushes and pulls each other with their words and thoughts and interests. But I remember this essay specifically for the beauty of the food writing and the way it took me to that time in my early 20s when I had roommates, little money, and a desire to share my food and a need to protect it. I remember eating one of my roommate's chocolate chip muffins, but was later told that she makes exactly enough to take one to work each day for the week. And I remember both of us drinking the last of each other's juice or milk or the Ritter Sport chocolate bar. And later that year, when we hosted Thanksgiving in our tiny apartment and set up a table that stretched from the kitchen into my bedroom, as I carved the turkey... Standing next to my dresser, I noticed a piece of steaming plastic poking outside of the cavity. 
I had left the bag filled with giblets inside the turkey as it roasted. Ugh, I remember the fear of mass poisoning and the money wasted, and then the dexterity it took to pull it out carefully, like a midwife. We ate it anyway. I also remember the importance of those moments, because the next time I had a turkey, without the steaming plastic, it tasted all the better. Annalise Peace unearthed all of this and the magic of eating alone, back then and now. I twirl the little papery pod from its tiny stem and wonder if I ever really eat and savor something alone anymore. I am from a big family. I married into a big family. And we often eat communally. We talk while eating and we share so much. When the sun shines through the papery skin of the ground cherry, you can see a network of dried veins in the casing, like a lacy cage around a small, smooth berry. I carefully peel back the skin, one side of the droplet at a time, and pin them back together to form a little handle. The berry is yellow, blurring into a shade of cantaloupe. It's like a tiny tomatillo, but smaller and green, not yellow. I bite the berry from the paper as the phone rings. We still have that landline. I know, it's weird. But I sense it's a telemarketer, so I just let it go. The berry pops in my mouth, an explosion of pineapple with a touch of tang. I read once that ground cherries are good for us, filled with antioxidants and vitamin C, but I'm not thinking about that. I crunch the paper between my fingers. I toss it aside, and I take another. And then I see that I'm alone, eating, and taking care of myself. Having Your Cake by Anna Lee Hershey Once I put a cake in my closet. It was the kind of cake where you boil whole oranges for hours and then puree them with almonds, eggs, and sugar. It is a tender cake with flecks of sweet and bitter rind. The pectin thickens the batter so it's firm, but the almonds release their oil slowly so the crumb gets more damp with age. When it is overcooked, the cake is not dry. When it's undercooked, it tastes like firm pudding or soft fudge. The first time I made the cake was in Sitka, Alaska. I was just out of college and living collectively for the first time in a former dormitory with 15 strangers for a year of community service. The building was drafty and dark with creaky radiators in each bedroom, fluorescent lights in the halls, and an unheated common room and bathrooms. We only filled half of the house, leaving one side of the long hallway of bedrooms empty and dark, amplifying the building's ghostly chill. The constant rain and few hours of winter light meant the days cycled between a dim glow and a dim fade. There was always a shadow from night, winter, or rainstorm on the horizon. But the kitchen, the kitchen glowed. It was nothing to brag about, a cheaply renovated tight square with a drop ceiling, two refrigerators, no dishwasher, and a little electric stove that regularly caught on fire. 
The room was warm and cozy, and at its center was a big wobbly table where there was always company. Someone working, reading, chatting, playing cards, playing music, or eating, and an invitation to join. The kitchen was the center of our house, and food was at the center of our lives. We foraged for alpine blueberries, were gifted pounds of coho salmon from fishermen. They had packed the freezer before we moved in. Neighbors brought us what they had harvested, herring eggs, dungeness crab, pickled beech asparagus, halibut, venison, and the tender cheeks of black cod. We all had kitchen projects going too. 50-pound bulk flour sacks bought for a short-lived bread co-op and dusting the carpeted pantry floor. Fermenting starters and kombucha jars labeled, Do Not Throw Away. An 18-hour pork roast I squeezed into the little oven and patted down in my bathrobe to check on as it cooked throughout the night. There were thefts, too. We would buy ice cream in gallon containers and then steal from each other out of the freezer, one sneaky scoop at a time. The same for Nutella or anything that could be stolen in spoonfuls. I took my most precious ingredients upstairs to my bedroom, and I kept my two nice kitchen knives protected in a black roll in my underwear drawer, away from careless hands that might leave it in a puddle to rust. Despite the tight quarters and stolen goods, we all liked cooking together and eating together. Someone was always making something delicious. We often ate perched on the counter, sometimes sliding down the cabinets to the floor. There was always enough to share. We hosted people from town every Sunday for dinner, and our table swelled to 20, 25, 30 people. It was one of the happiest times of my life. I had been thinking about the cake for a while before I made it. My desk for the volunteer job I was assigned was in a former supply closet with a little window looking into the dark, dripping forest. I scrawled notes to myself during long, dark staff meetings. Oranges, grapefruit, limes, avocados, lemon curd, summer fruits, cake. I dreamed of food that tasted like sunshine. One afternoon, I decided to make the cake. We were volunteers on a stipend, so buying a pound of almonds to ground into meal was a significant investment, but this cake would be my sunny vacation. I copied the directions down onto a slip of paper and followed them closely. The smell of citrus oil and warm sugar wafted down the unheated hallways, rosy fingers stretching into dark, empty rooms. My housemates' mouths watered. But our oven was finicky and fiery, and when I took the cake out after its 45-minute bake, the top was dark brown. I had ruined it. I was devastated. All this money on the pound of almonds and half a dozen eggs, the hours boiling the oranges, the tempting aroma, only to have burned the most simple thing. I wrapped the hot pan in a tea towel and stomped upstairs, glowering. I put the cake in my closet and slammed the door. So sorry, I have to slide in here because I want to hug young Anna Lee at this point and tell her it's okay. In a new book of Middle Eastern food, the author Claudia Roden writes, these cakes, which are half pudding, half cake, can never fail. 
By these cakes, she means Sephardic cakes, which made their way into the food culture of the Middle East, she explains, when Jews left Spain and Portugal during the Spanish Inquisition and settled throughout the Middle East. Keeping kosher meant not using wheat flour during Jewish holidays, so almond flour was used instead, and oranges were plentiful in the area and a natural thickener for an unleavened cake. The combination, a blend of religion, tradition, and ingredients from the land, made for a cake that prevailed, because it can never fail. Anna Lee needed Claudia, tucked in the closet, Don't ask me about the cake, I muttered to concerned faces at dinner. My room smelled delicious like the cake, the smell of my failure. My room could have been drab with its old and gray carpeting and crumbly popcorn plaster walls, but it wasn't. It was beautiful. It had a wall of windows, wood between the panes of old wavy glass. The windows looked out over Crescent Harbor, and I could see the snowy mountains beyond. I had brought my own extra-strength light bulbs for a powerful warm glow and strung a branch of driftwood with cords of light so it twinkled on my desk. I went to bed grumpy, curling up under my fluffy white duvet in my narrow twin bed, lulled by the smell of orange and almond. I woke up the next morning hungry. I thought about the cake. I turned over and tried to go back to sleep. I thought about the cake again. I took out a knife from my underwear drawer and went into the closet. The top of the cake was still dark, although not burned as I had originally thought, just very browned. I sliced a small wedge. Underneath the dark brown top was a perfectly creamy center, pale orange, dense and damp. I took a little bite. It was delicious. Creamy, bitter, toothsome. I loved the word toothsome that year. It was perfumed like marmalade and sweetened by the almonds and caramelized sugar. The half dozen eggs gave it the suggestion of a solid breakfast. It would be perfect with a sip of coffee. I cut another slice and took it back to bed with me. I came home for lunch and ran upstairs to have another slice before going back to work. After dinner, my housemate Anya came to sit on my bed for our weekly nail painting routine. We had two colors, navy and deep red. Anya said she thought it looked cool when the paint was a little chipped, like you had too much important work to do with your hands to keep your nails pristine. Anya has great taste, so I was satisfied when my nails chipped at the edges. When she came in and spread the cloth over my bedspread for nail painting, I offered her a slice of the cake. She accepted. She thought it was good. I put the cake back in my closet. I told no one else about the cake. The next morning, I woke up and thought, how much cake could I eat before I feel ill? I got a slice and ate it under the covers. I had three more pieces before I was done. When the cake was down to its last slice, I felt some regret that my cake, my perfect failure, my ideal snack, the crumb of my crumb, the slice of my slice, was nearly gone. I acquired competence at an early age. Cooking for a crowd? I've got you. Want to make something neat with your cardboard scraps? I have ideas. Stuck in a political pickle? I can probably brainstorm a solution. But despite my general competence, I often get so hungry that I am unable to feed myself. 
Hangry is a funny term for something that isn't funny. My face goes slack, my mind spins out. Hunger hands over the rudder of my ship to the inner Puritan I inherited, who says, make do with what you have, or three meals a day is a luxury, or this hunger is a small suffering. I talk myself out of meeting the need. I find the fatal flaw in every plan. A light hum rings in my ears, and what is usually sharp gets soft edges. I cut my own feet off. I tie my hands behind my back, and then the puritanical voice replies, God helps those who help themselves. I am filled with despair for this moment, for my life, for the world. With time has come the wisdom to hedge against hunger with protein bars stuffed in my purse and trail mix in the glove compartment. The foreknowing to eat something as duty, as prevention against the loss of sense and senses. I can't change this fact of my body and mind, but I can protect myself with snacks. I can keep the lights on all winter if I feed myself. Making a cake just for you is both a sensible hedge against hunger and a delicious indulgence. There are a lot of lessons that could be drawn from this, like let your failure feed you. But cake isn't for morals, it's for pleasure. The poor Puritan within has suffered enough. Let her have cake. The cake must be in the closet, not because it's secret or shameful, but because it must be in close proximity to you, easily accessible and not at risk of poaching from others. This is not about indulgence or wish fulfillment or hoarding. You must feel free to eat as much or as little of it as you want, as you actually want. The cake is not for public consumption. It is not a part of the discourse. You must not feel the burden of making someone happy by having another piece. You can give someone a slice, but only if you've had your fill. This cake is for fortifying the self in a collective context, for letting you put indulgent crumbs in your own mouth. This cake is not for taking care of others. No matter how the cake turns out, it is only for you. It was a long and dark winter, and it was the least lonely time of my life. The darkness of winter is not a flaw of the world. It is its natural state. To be among others in a collective, too, is a natural state. I remember the feeling of my body in the darkness, and I can remember clearly looking up at a wood stove through a window, the neon glow from the pioneer bar, moonlight on the water, boat cabins lit up from within and bobbing in the harbor, the lights in our tiny kitchen shining from across the road, a lighthouse through the rain and loneliness, a beacon out of hunger to golden, glowing, toasty cake. M.F.K. Fisher wrote about the pleasures of eating alone in secret in an essay called Borderland. It begins with a woman named Claudine who would crouch by the fire, turning a hat pin just fast enough to keep the toasting nubbin of chocolate from dropping off. Sometimes she did it on a hairpin over a candle. And then M.F.K. moves on to share her own quiet pleasure with specific instructions. Mm-hmm. 
On a February day in Strasbourg, peel tangerine segments, place on yesterday's newspaper, and warm on a hot radiator until the segments are plumper, hot, and full. At which point you carry them to the window, pull it open, and leave them for a few minutes on the packed snow. And then they are ready. The little shells, she writes, thin as one layer of enamel on a Chinese bowl that crinkles so tinnily, so ultimately under your teeth, or the rush of cold pulp just after it, the perfume, I cannot tell. I visited my parents recently and watched my dad move through the kitchen, cleaning up after breakfast, owning the space in a way he never did before he retired. He folded cereal bags and sealed them with a small binder clip before putting the bags back in their boxes. He screwed the lids back on the jars of seeds he sprinkles on his cereal and placed them back on the shelf. Then he sat down in the window and sipped his coffee while watching nuthatches and chickadees flit to and from the bird feeder in the window. It's a specific rhythm, one that I can see soothes and delights him. I ask if there's something he likes to eat alone, something that he loves so much it takes all of his attention. I already know the answer. Of course, it's a peanut butter sandwich. I've been watching him enjoy the making and eating of a peanut butter sandwich for as long as I can remember. Having four daughters meant he was rarely alone, but he managed to experience this delicacy quietly within the chaos. His culinary repertoire has expanded, but this sandwich is still his favorite thing to eat. I put the peanut butter on both sides of the bread. And incidentally, white bread is always superior in a peanut butter jelly sandwich. I'm not sure about the nutritional benefits of that, but it just is aesthetically pleasing. Contrast to the brown and the white and, and the various different types of jelly. And I think probably my favorite jelly would be grape jelly. And I've become a very big affectionado of of red currant and black currant jelly and those are those would be my three favorites at the time but strawberry jam is always good and blueberry jam is wonderful with peanut butter i always have it with a glass of milk one percent and that's the perfect uh pairing of uh, a liquid and uh, a solid and um, and I love to make a peanut butter and jelly or jam sandwich for noon hour when I'm in a little bit of a rush and I I make it in the corner where the ingredients the peanut butter's on my right and I just have to go to the fridge to get the jelly and uh, and or jam and I just whip it up and I sit down and I I never eat it standing. Don't like crumbs on the floor. (laughs) Uh, It does produce a lot of crumbs. So uh, I'm always rather orderly in where I eat it and cleaning up after, of course. And uh, and I just uh, have a nice bite, usually from the uh, crusty side of the bread. 
is my first bite and I usually just divide it into two sandwiches and then I take a nice drink of milk and I alternate bite milk, bite milk <laughs> until I'm done and then I tidy up and um, I usually have a cup of black tea um, and then I'm good for another two or three hours. also left us with specific instructions for her cake. One, simmer two oranges in water for two hours. Remove the seeds and puree. Two, heat the oven to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Beat six eggs, add pureed oranges, half a pound of ground almonds, half a pound of sugar, one teaspoon of baking powder. Three, Pour into cake tin and bake for 45 minutes to one hour. Four, let cool on a wire rack, then put in your closet. Five, whenever the thought of the cake comes to you, take a small knife and cut off a piece and eat it. Six, repeat until the cake or you is done. Thank you, Annalie Hershey, for reading your essay, Having Your Cake. I have oranges boiling on the stove as I speak. And thanks to my dad, Ian Cameron, for sharing his recipe for the perfect peanut butter sandwich. This series is edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme song is Jen Grant's One More Night. Please rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. 